Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Al, food and drink editor. And I'm Grizz, commissioning editor on the FT's Arts Desk. In today's episode, we'll be discussing consent. I've been talking to the writer Kristen Rupenian, whose short story Cat Person went viral when it was published in The New Yorker at the end of 2017. And it became a real focal point for many of the conversations in the early days of Me Too. Kristen has just published a collection of short stories called You Know You Want This. And Grizz talked to her about that, what it was like to have basically her first published short story become an internet sensation, and how she reflects on that exhilarating but strange period of her life now. It's a fascinating interview. One of the big themes of Cat Person was sex, where we draw the line between a bad date and non-consensual sex, and whether we should draw that line. So we'll discuss all of that later in the episode. And for that, Grizz and I will be leaving the FT headquarters in search of a cosy pub in which to have this frank and potentially fraught discussion about consent and the difficulties that tend to arise in conversations around it. There are a few areas of popular culture that aren't actually impacted by the controversies and conversations around the issue of consent. So Al and I thought it was time to examine our own attitudes and have one of those difficult conversations ourselves. Hi Al. Hey Chris. How are you? I'm very well. What have you been up to since we were last in the studio? I've been eating strange things. I've been eating frozen popcorn. If you eat frozen popcorn, it's a Smoke comes out of your nose like you're a dragon. <laughs> um, I've had camel milk ice cream, a Jerusalem artichoke dessert. Uh, last night at this great dinner that was in honour of the International Women's Day, um, I was cooked for by two of the best chefs in the world, really, Anne-Sophie Pick and Claire Smith. And I had a, the simplest sounding dish of all time. It was potato and roe. And I thought they were going to do something mental with it. In fact, it was just a potato. Um, with some one potato, yeah, just sitting there, just one potato with some sort of salmon roe, and it's really like the best thing I've had all year. And it was so simple and delicious that I went home thinking I could do this at home, but it, it's impossible. There's no way that I, I could spend years trying to perfect this sort of signature dish by Claire Smith. It's like I went to a restaurant recently, and for pudding, we had vanilla ice cream, quite normal, then mm-hmm. sloshed with olive oil and salt. And wow. um, we left and we thought, well, I'm going to do that at home. That's easy. I'll just get some nice vanilla and I'll slosh some extra virgin and cover it in salt. Um, it will I, not be delicious. Well, I was like, you know, come on, mate. You do that and your guest's going to think you, you've gone mental. Or blind. Um, it actually makes me think of my culinary experience of the past four night, which as an avowedly unfoody person may surprise you. But um, I went to Barcelona last weekend where my sister lives. And she took us into the countryside outside Barcelona. And at this time of year, 
a Catalan delicacy is these things called calcots. I'm probably mispronouncing that. It's probably that's probably not real Catalan, but they're basically like a cross between I would say a leek and an onion. It's very simple. You get them, they look kind of completely charred and blackened. You don a paper bib and plastic gloves, almost like you're at school about to do a science experiment. Quite fetching. Everybody wears them in the restaurant, which kind of infantilizes everybody and brings us all down to the same level, so that's great. And then with your plastic gloves on, you kind of strip the onion, so and you have a little bowl to put all the blackened uh, shells into, dip it into some sauce, and then as if you were holding up a piece of spaghetti into your mouth and dangling the whole thing in at once, you have to put it all in at once and kind of tip your head back to do it. I'm doing it. I'm doing um an impression in the that studio which will be lost awesome. on most people. No, it's it was not lost on me. Surprisingly simple. It's basically two ingredients, the sauce and the calcot, chalcot. Um, I think calcot's calcot, fine. but yeah, seasonal and delicious. And sensual. It sounds like a beautiful experience. I mean, I don't think it was a beautiful experience. The table was extremely mucky and covered in like charred bits. Yeah, the British and have a very villages and the British have a very sort of over polite you know, attitude towards getting mucky. Most cultures, I think, you know, certainly Chinese, they just cover themselves in sort of duck tongues and things like this. And I think we are particularly sort of squeamish about that. I, that sounds like a liberating and beautiful Yeah, experience. I mean, I did actually kind of want to take the plastic gloves off, actually, because yeah, they felt yeah. kind of wrong. So today you're interviewing Christian Rupenny. Mm-hmm. Why did you want to interview her? Yes, I wanted to talk to Kristen because I read her short story, Cat Person, in, I think it was December 2017, which is when it came out and when it went viral um, on The New Yorker. It was read by, I think, around four and a half million people online, um, probably more than that now. And it it sort of catalyzed a moment in the conversation around Me Too and about how men and women relate to each other and about sex and about dating today, which I found really fascinating. But then I was also interested in, in the story of her, of Kristen herself, and what it might have been like for a writer who was basically unknown to have this incredible experience of um, sort of becoming a viral sensation pretty instantly and how that might have affected her and her writing. Um, so for anyone who hasn't read Cat Person, it is the tale of a short-lived relationship, I don't know if you can call it a relationship exactly, uh, between Margot, who's a 22-year-old student in an American college town, and Robert, who's a 30-something man. Uh, They meet at the art house cinema where she works. Eventually they exchange numbers and they begin this kind of flirty text conversation. Um, After a drunken date, they end up at his house They have sex, very bad sex, sex that Margot doesn't really necessarily want to have, but goes along with it. And I think therein lies the sort of nub of the debate of of what was kind of uh, controversial about about the story. After that, you know, she she ghosts him. For those who don't know what ghosting is, it's ignoring your messages. I have to look that up. And... His messages start off in this friendly way, but he... So these are the messages he sends her after they've had this yes. bad date, bad So day. he's sending sort of friendly messages and his sort of lame messages sort of assume a slightly nastier edge. He sort of stalks her in a, a bit and, and then he calls her a whore and that's the end of the story. But before 
we talk about a cat person in the story, I actually started by asking her about her own experience of cat person's kind of a virality um, and publication. One of the worst, ugliest words of all time. <laughs> I was going to say virility. Um, yeah, and what that, what that felt like, really, to, to, to be at the, the centre of a storm like that. Kristen Repenian, welcome to Everything Else. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you very much for coming on. I want to start right in the centre of it. Um, <laughs> where were you when you realised that cat person was going viral? <laughs> tell me a bit about that. Sure. Um, well, I can tell you exactly where I was. I was at a coffee shop um, with my girlfriend. It was on, I think, a Friday. Uh, it was a few days after the story had actually gone up. I think the story was published and went online on a Monday. Um, and there were a few days of relative quiet. And then so we sort of had, had sort of not that I put it out of my mind. It was still the most exciting thing that had ever happened to me to have a store in the New Yorker. But we had gone out and we're trying to work and she was scrolling through Twitter and she sort of looked up and she was like, something's going on with your story. <laughs> and it took me a while to figure out what it was. Um, and then I went home and got online and sort of the moment that I feel like I really got it, my mom called for some other reason and uh she also went on Twitter and started looking, and we were scanning, and, and then she goes, Kristen, someone Barack Obama follows just shared your story. Do you think uh. Barack Obama has read your story? <laughs> and then she started crying. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that was the moment that I realized that, like, something really big was going on. Mm. But it's still, I feel like it moved so fast, and it was so huge, and sometimes I feel like I'm still wrapping my mind around exactly what happened. Was it a sense of kind of sudden visibility? Yeah, I mean, it was it was terrifying in the moment. Just having the story be published at all was an order of magnitude more readers, more attention, more visibility than than I'd ever had before. So and you hadn't had a story published no, in the New York before, so this was a first not. for you. I mean, really, it was my first published story at all, and um, the idea that I'd written something that would like upset or anger people was very new and very unsettling and sort of hard to believe, for sure. I mean, in a way, it's kind of a dream for a writer to suddenly have all this real-life feedback from real-life readers. It's very <laughs> it's very rare, but, but I can imagine overwhelming. Yeah, I think I had to spend a lot of time thinking after what happened happened. I had to spend a lot of time thinking what sort of my proper relationship was to the people who were reading the story. And I, I what I came to decide is like certainly I want readers I want the story to reach as many people as it can but I don't know that I think that it's my job or that it's good for me as a writer to be sort of taking in like the unfiltered response of people who are reading the story in real time that actually that is fairly new as like even a possibility and when you look back at that experience that very intense experience yeah. at the distance of a year or more does it make sense to you what happened and why I mean I feel like I I have come to understand it, or at least like I have a working theory of it. A lot of the past year has been kind of sorting through it, like how did that happen? But I do think that with any kind of virality or sort of mass moment, there's always going to be some aspect of it that isn't comprehensible or at least not predictable, right? It's like a weather pattern or something. It's like a storm swept me up. And like you can understand the weather to a certain degree, but like one of the things you understand is that you can't predict it or control it. And there's a randomness. Exactly, to it. exactly. Presumably you wrote Cat Person before Me Too. Uh huh. Um, and so 
you know, it was read as primarily a story about consent. But yeah. I wonder, when you were writing it, did you think about the, the sort of what is this about? And, and was that one of the main things? Yeah, I mean, I do my best when I'm writing, at least when I'm drafting, not to think what is the story about? How will this be interpreted? What does this say? What's the message or the meaning? I, I think that tends to be more the responsibility of readers to tell you what they think the story is about. And yeah, in a practical sense, I wrote the story in April of 2017. So that was before the Me Too movement had really come into its own. But I do think in retrospect, and this is one of those things that like with a year to think about, I feel like I have some answer, which is that I wrote it you know, before Me Too, but after 2016 election, after like the Access Hollywood tape. And what I do remember about that moment in which I was writing was just a kind of like really fraught atmosphere in which it felt like everybody's teeth were on edge, that all conversations like about gender and the between men and women had this extra edge. And I do feel like that frustration and that anger and that sort of like sense that things had been kind of bad for a while, but we hadn't been addressing it, was part of the energy that powered the story. And then that also seems very clearly part of the power of the Me Too movement. It was the same. So maybe that they were kind of, there was the same energy that created them both. I think the interesting thing for me and lots of female friends um, and colleagues who were, who read it at that moment was that the sort of Me Too debate had felt pretty fractious and pretty yeah. polarised. And obviously the response to your story encapsulated that uh -huh. to some extent but I felt like actually it kind of it moved the conversation on in into a bit of a gray area yeah. so um you know consent is yes or no but this was a story about something uh something more about to me it felt unwanted sex and also that strange sense of it's a, it's a false empowerment uh -huh. but to feel the male gaze upon you yeah. particularly as a younger woman yeah. That can feel empowering. Yeah. And you can feel right? invincible in some exactly. way. But you're not. Right. Yeah. I think that was something that was really wonderful about the conversation. And especially I think of the conversation around cat person happening in like several waves. And I feel like the first wave really was just women finding the story and being like, oh, I see myself in this. This feels familiar to me. This is meaningful to me, and I haven't seen this particular set of feelings expressed in quite this way before, sharing it and other people saying, yeah, me too. Like, the thing that felt isolating and lonely and, like, maybe only yours is actually not at all. And I think that is a really, like, kind of magical and, and powerful thing, and I feel, in retrospect, really proud that the story got to be a part of that. And I think this conversation you know then there were there were sort of like as there always are when something's happening online like there were sort of second and third sort of iterations and the backlash and the backlash and so then it became much more of a conversation between men and women about men not getting it and women being angry that they weren't getting it and everyone trying to t sort of like you know engage with each other but even so I do feel like that turned out to be, especially in comparison with some of the conversations that came after, like because it was fiction, there was a space where it wasn't wrong to say, I don't understand why Margot made these choices. Maybe not all of them were the best. Robert, I don't understand quite how bad he is. I think he's a jerk here, but maybe 
it's being misinterpreted. You know, that you could ask those questions and feel free to ask them because there wasn't a Margo and there wasn't a Robert. You know, it was okay to have a conversation and people were able to sort of like edge out of their really entrenched positions to like actually talk to each other. Yeah, And I think fiction gave them that freedom. There's a kind of perilousness to writing that closely to a character, mm-hmm. though, um, in that, you know, this is not autobiographical. Right. It's not in the it's not even in the first person. It's right. a kind of close yeah. third person. Um, and yet I felt quite quickly in that sort of cycle that happened yeah. after the publication that the, you, the writer and Margot, the protagonist, collapsed into one. Yeah. And I, I, I also saw that. And it was funny because. You know, I I made the decision, like I said, pretty quickly not to get online, like not to engage with the conversation. What that meant, though, was that since nobody knew about me, it was easy for them to conflate me with the main character who they knew, you know, here is a like white woman who looks relatively young in the one picture we have of her. They're probably the same. And there were like what I knew was that there were really big differences between Margot and I. She's 20, I'm 37. Um, She was, you know, dating. I'm in a relationship with a woman. Um, And there was a part of me that was angry occasionally, especially, like, in the sort of later think PC part, like, one National Review essay that was, like, an open letter to the protagonist of Cat Person, stop sleeping around. And there was a part of me that wanted to be like, look, I know that this isn't me, but I don't know that you know that this isn't me, and I would like you to stop. Um, I mean, but, it's a kind of compliment that someone's writing an open letter to a fictional exactly, character. Exactly, exactly. And it's funny, you know, because I was 36, I spent a lot of time thinking, like, is this representation of a 20-year-old real? Like, is she texting the way that a 20-year-old would? And and, like, obsessing a little bit over those details or, like, cutting dialogue that I was afraid wasn't authentic. And then to have it essentially work too well was strange. And just kind of zooming out a bit, you know, this is a really unusual experience to have a a first story in the New York (laughs) go viral. Um, Has this changed your day-to-day life? And and what kind of things have changed? It has and it hasn't. Um, When the story first went viral, everything changed, but it all changed online. You know, suddenly I was sending emails to editors and, you know, Googling myself and finding all these strange essays talking about me and felt like everybody in the world was like saying my name. And then I would close the computer and I would go outside and nobody cared. You know, nobody would, nobody knew anything was different. So in that way, like it didn't change too much. But the magic outcome of the story going viral was that I sold my collection. And that is huge. And that, like, after having lived what was essentially a a fairly tenuous grad student, you know, existence, a year to year, sort of like not sure how I'm going to pay my rent, to have that kind of security, actually, I feel like changes very palpably, like, the texture of my day to day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you say very modestly enough money. I mean, this yeah. was this was quite a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It's more money than I'd ever had in my life, and sort of really expect to ever have again. You know, and so I mean, it's, that is disorienting too. You know, you're just sort of thrust into this responsibility of like, I don't know how to handle that much money. Like, I'm learning a lot. You know, all those practical things are very new, and I'm I'm learning them at the same time that I'm also learning like how to go on the radio, you know, and and talk, you know, to people and podcasts. So yeah, that is different. But I would say that what feels the most different is just a sort of absence of worry that was there for so long that I almost didn't notice it until I like, it was like someone turned a radio dial down. I'm like, oh, it's quiet. 
And your collection, you know you want this. Am I right in thinking that most of these stories were written before Cat Person? Or Yeah, the majority of them. I wrote them over a period of maybe five or six years. And um, Cat Person was one of the later ones. And I wrote a few stories after, or like at least one, after Cat Person had been finished, but before it had been published. And then I sold the collection right after the story went viral. And then I added a few stories after that. So yeah, I've been working on them for a long time. I'm interested in, in whether this whole experience changed the way you write or changed the way you approach writing. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. When, when the story first went viral, there was a part of me that was like, well, this is terrifying. I'll never write again. This is too much attention. This is going to be paralyzing. And when Cat Person appeared, I stopped. I was sort of like scared. And then my editor, to her great credit, I sent her a bunch of stuff, like older stories. And, and she was like, finish that. And I did. And I like knowing that I could do it was this huge relief. Um, And after that, I did sort of just keep on working on things. So that didn't actually change the experience as much as in the last few months, like when I've been promoting the book, it means that I'm talking about the book and it means I'm thinking about the book in that analytical way. They're like, what do these stories mean? What do I want them to achieve? And I find that that part of my brain that sort of runs interference with the ability to like make things up without worrying too much about what they mean. So I think it will be the real test is what will happen after this. You know what I mean? If I'll be able to get into that place where there's a relative lack of self-consciousness about what I'm doing. And I'm interested that the good guy and cat person are in this kind of gritty uh, social realism kind of vein. And I think people picked up on that. But what's surprising and kind of fresh about the collection of short stories is, you know, a lot of them had this very macabre kind of gothic horror twist. I mean, I I do love it. It's funny, for a long time, when people asked me what kind of a writer I was, I would say I was a horror writer. I don't know. I mean, as it's the kind of reader that I am and always was. I was a huge Stephen King fan growing up, still am, but like also just in general was drawn to stories that really gripped me, that scared me, that sort of pushed me into like just the right amount of discomfort. And I don't know. I mean, I think to me, the sense of like propulsion through the story, a sense that we're like kind of hurtling towards something that you don't necessarily want to reach, but you also can't like get off the train, you know, that feeling of intensity that to me, I've always been able to get most sort of directly and cleanly from horror is something that I'm always looking to create in the stories. And I think for readers who are ready to go on that ride, I know as a reader, it's so satisfying when like, you're sort of vaguely anxious about a lot of things. Stuff is bothering you, but it's like not that bad. You're not like in a crisis. You're just kind of like feeling the weight of the world. And then you like read a story and it's like all that ambient anxiety gets sort of like pulled out of the air and like squeezed into the shape of a monster that can be sort of like fought, you know, directly. And it can be such a like cathartic relief to see the world in this slightly new way. And I wonder, are these things on a continuum, bad sex, bad dates, and then at the other end, horror. I mean, there's a connection between these two things. Yeah, I mean, I think the the theme, I think, that unites all the stories is a theme of uses and abuses of power. I'm always really interested in that. I think maybe the temptation to exert power over other people, to me, that is a space that lies very close to the horrific. Like, it's a, it's a fear. And I think 
It's also just a lens. I think there is a mode where you, or why say you, I, like can see, sometimes see like the sort of battles between people and the struggles about dating and like how grim the world can sometimes feel. Sometimes it feels like the best way to look at the world is through a horror story. It strikes me that um, there is an element of the supernatural in what happened to you. I mean, yeah, the story going viral exactly. is a strange thing. It is really strange. And I think like the sort of feeling of like, it's like cracking at the edges where you're just like, I had a mode that explained the world. I had a certain sense of things that were always going to be true. And I thought I knew who I was and like what my life was like. And then the bottom drops and you're kind of hurtling through space. I think that happens to most people at least a few times. And like, it's the most supernatural and strange. It's like, it's adolescence is a space like that. I feel very adolescent sometimes in my like life right now because it's like suddenly I've like, I've grown awkwardly and I have all these new like demands and experiences and feelings. I just sort of want to like throw my hands up and be like, I don't understand anything. (laughs) And that's, I remember feeling that way when I was 12 or 13. And so, yeah, it's supernatural and sort of also like going through an awkward late stage puberty. (laughs) Yeah. And also that sense of the bottom dropping out. I mean, they are weird and strange. And one way of talking about that is through a metaphor kind of horror. Exactly. And to feel like sometimes it feels like practicing. You know what I mean? You're like, well, I'll practice facing my fears in this story. I'm going to like teach myself to be brave by watching this movie to the end. And then you like go out and face your life. And like, maybe you're a little braver. (laughs) It's it's very hard to write well about sex. I mean, hence the bad sex yeah. writing awards that we have. Um, do you like doing it? I do. It goes back to that thing about how I feel like part of me being able to write is getting into this space of like not thinking about it too hard and feeling like I'm in a space of sort of mental privacy and that I can trick myself into believing that nobody will ever read them and like almost every story I've ever written that I really like there's a moment when I'm writing it I'm like well this is the bridge too far this is gonna live in my laptop forever and never will see the light of day and then the process of like editing it and sharing it is like giving up on on that one of the things I really liked about these stories, and which is also there in Cat Person, is this ambiguity and this really constantly shifting power dynamic yeah. and the sense that there are different kinds of power we have. Yeah. There's a kind of sexual capital, there's economic, there's yeah. um, political, there's kind of a workplace power yeah, and who totally. has it. I wonder whether you might read a bit from one of your stories sure. that, that illustrates this kind of <laughs> this kind of shifting. Yeah, absolutely. So this is the opening of Biter. Ellie was a biter. She bit other kids in preschool, bit her cousins, bit her mom. By the time she was four years old, she was going to a special doctor twice a week to work on biting. At the doctor's, Ellie made two dolls bite each other, and then the dolls talked about how biting and being bitten made them feel. Ouch, one said. Sorry, said the other. I feel sad about that, said the one. I feel happy, said the other, but sorry again. She brainstormed lists of things she could do instead of biting, like raise her hand and ask for help, or take a deep breath and count to ten. At the doctor's suggestion, Ellie's parents put a chart on Ellie's bedroom door, and Ellie's mom put a gold star on it for every day Ellie didn't bite. 
But Ellie loved biting, even more than she loved gold stars, and she kept on biting, joyfully and fiercely, until one day, after preschool, pretty Katie Davis pointed at Ellie and whispered loudly to her dad, That one's Ellie. No one likes her. She bites people. And Ellie felt so sick with shame, she didn't bite anyone again for more than 20 years. As an adult, though her active biting days were long behind her, Ellie still indulged in daydreams in which she stalked her co-workers around the office, biting them. For example, she imagined sneaking into the copy room where Thomas Whittacombe was collating reports, so engrossed in his task that he didn't notice Ellie creeping up behind him on all fours. Ellie, what on earth, Thomas Whittacombe would cry in the final seconds before Ellie sunk her teeth into his plump and hairy calf. For while the world had succeeded in shaming Ellie out of biting, it couldn't make her forget the joy of tiptoeing behind Robbie Ketrick while he was standing at the craft table, smugly stacking blocks. Everything is normal, quiet, boring, and then here comes Ellie, chomp! Now Robbie Ketrick is screaming like a baby and everybody is scrambling and yelling, and Ellie is no longer just a little girl, but a wild creature pacing the halls of the preschool, sowing chaos and destruction in her wake. It's fun, that one, because, um, well, I'm not going to spoil it for for listeners, (laughs) but it has a great twist. And it's a twist that seems in some ways a kind of response to what we've been reading about um, men and women and workplace dynamics and, and consent and power. Yeah, I mean, I wanted... I also will try not to spoil it, but also, I don't know, it's the journey, not the destination. (laughs) Um, I feel like I wanted to write about a woman wrestling with sort of an unacceptable desire. Um, And I thought about the way that, like, biting is the first kind of unacceptable desire. It's the first thing that, like, when you're a kid, you want to do it and you know you shouldn't. And you have to learn how to not do it. (laughs) And, like, the sort of wrestling yourself back under control and learning how much of yourself has to be sort of pulled in so that you can move successfully in the world. I feel like that... It's something that we have a lot of stories about for men, and I don't know that we have as many stories talking about women, but women have to do as much work to, like, bring themselves under control as men do, and I think there can be a real satisfaction, at least for me, there was a satisfaction in writing about someone who, while, you know, she knew that biting was unacceptable, was, like, clearly knew what she wanted, you know what I mean? And it was unequivocal. Yeah, I mean, it felt like a kind of... I felt like a kind of fantasy woman who knows exactly what she wants. Right. There's no gray area. She's she's not ashamed of it. She knows it's not right. okay, right. but that doesn't stop her wanting it. Right. She hasn't internalized exactly the shame. You know what I mean? She's like, okay, fine. I can't bite people. I get why. <laughs> but that doesn't mean I don't want to. And I, I think, yeah, I, I just feel like it's surprising when you think about it, how rare it is to see stories about women who feel that way. Yeah, and to see stories about um, female pleasure and female desire and that yeah. to be... I mean, still, in 2019, it's it's still quite rare. Right, right. That Where it isn't immediately sort of met with, and these are the horrors that it wreaks, and these are all the destruction it leaves, you know, in its path. Here is why she ends up feeling guilty about it, or here is why she faces consequences in the end. Kristen, thanks so much for coming on Everything Else. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely to talk to you. It was really fun. Okay, so that was different to how I was expecting. It was, I was expecting more about men 
abusing women in some ways. Um, I, I found that the cat person is in many ways a, a brilliant story in its ambiguities and its darkness, but essentially the the tone of it is charmless and and heavy. Um, and I'd kind of expected that the interview might go in sort of that direction as well. But really quite a lot of it is about this young writer who has had you know, a tremendous of like unfathomable success and you know how she feels sort of understandably like thrilled about her current situation. Okay, so first, um, I'm surprised that you say that Cat Person's charmless and heavy. I wonder if you might explain that a bit. In that it's, well, it's, it's about quite a really... millennial-ish and kind of funny and incorporates well, I don't think text speaking being millennial is automatically charming and light. No, but it's light in that I think the to- what I mean is that the tone is millennial in the way it incorporates text, the way she speaks, the, the way that she's quite detached from her own feeling. You know, she talks about after sex, she talks about just sort of being disembodied and thinking, I think it says she, she thought brightly. That's the worst experience of my life. I think it's well written, but the you know, the story in its essence is of a really gross older guy um, misreading every signal imaginable and performing like the worst sex imaginable. And a woman, a young woman who, for various reasons, feels unable to say no. And then the the reader has to go through the excruciating experience with her of this awful sex it's sort of painful and embarrassing and yes there are definitely funny bits but there's nothing sort of lovable about this story it's it's basically it's painful and it's provocative you know in a sort of good and interesting way it's so funny because i found actually reading it quite cathartic i enjoyed the bad sex of it and i felt like probably most women have been in that situation or one like it hopefully not necessarily something that bad but in a in that place of kind of I've got myself here or I am here um I want to get out I don't think I can um but going back to the interview itself something that she said that was interesting and that I could sort of imagine myself doing were this ever to happen to me was she said she was googling herself and sort of finding all these opinion pieces about herself on the internet um as cat person was going viral and then she'd go outside and everything would obviously be completely normal and nobody knew who she was. And I guess the, that ex- the experience of what happened to her is completely split between what happens in your sort of online life and what happens IRL. And that is one of the things that sort of characterises her experience, I think. Yeah, that must be extremely weird. And then after that, you must start thinking, whatever I write next... I've got these like these faceless weirdos online who are going to be judging me. I mean, it's real, but it's almost a sort of like fictional sort of hinterland around mm. you who are sort of who are judging you, who feel they can have an opinion on work that is sort of intensely personal. Yeah, and she was interesting about sort of that boundary between what should be accessible to the reader and also how much you are responsible for the reader and sort of guiding them through how they feel and what they think and sort of actually hearing their feedback as well and that maybe there should be a kind of wall of privacy there and that's a necessary thing. Okay, so we're going to continue to talk about cat person and the idea of consent and Me Too more broadly and I think we agree that it would might be nicer and more conducive to open-hearted warmth uh, in a pub. 
Yeah, and not in a um, tiny studio. Which is essentially sort of spirit crushing. And uh, <laughs> this is all about a, you know, a meeting, a joyful um, meeting of friends more than colleagues. Indeed. Let's go. So we're in a pub on the Thames, just along from our office. It's sort of late afternoon. It's fairly empty, but there are a few people here. We're still talking about cat person. Um, And I'm interested in this idea that maybe in talking about these difficult topics, that actually fiction is a better medium for sort of uncovering truth than just sort of straight journalism. Yeah, I think it also can kind of bury into those grey areas and treat things with a kind of nuance that is actually quite hard to get at in sort of argumentative journalism. I found when I read Cat Person for the second time, my feelings towards the Robert character had actually shifted a bit and I felt... Not, not a total empathy for him, I wouldn't say. Um, but I felt sorry for him in a different way, which was that there was something... There's this, there's this bit where he's kind of pumping away and he quite palpably loses his erection and then proceeds to say, I'm so hard right now. And it's this kind of awful moment where I felt like, you know, he's kind of trapped by all these expectations that he has of himself and the society has of him as like a kind of macho aggressive guy and actually um, Margot in her way is kind of stuck in not being able to say what she wants and he's stuck instead of not being able to articulate something that's actually kind of going wrong Isn't it basically true that just truth is most truth is subjective anyway and that characters in novels can assume a much greater reality and truth in your own life. Yeah, and I think that that's true. I think, you know, fiction is one of the ways that we get in under someone's skin, of course, and, like, humanises people. I mean, in a way, I think throughout the whole Me Too thing, there was a narrative to dismiss all these guys as monsters, but actually Robert is not a monster. He's compromised, for sure, and what he does is not okay. But there's a kind of humanity in the portrayal of him that feels like you could sort of see where he's going wrong and what might have happened. Do you think it is interesting and useful to hear from guys like Robert? I do think that everybody has a story and that we can only understand more about people by hearing their side of the story. However, I would sort of stop there because I do think the thing about Me Too that has been so important is that for a long time we haven't really been hearing the Margot side of the story and so to sort of take this moment and twist it and say it's so important to hear from the men feels you know it it feels perverse I think. Essentially that is the conclusion that I've drawn from you know the past whatever it is 18 months of this is that it's time for men to shut up and listen and maybe not forever but maybe for a generation to shut up and listen. I mean, I think, obviously, the important thing there is listen. I don't think the important thing is necessarily shut up, or at least that's my view on it. I think the listening is important because the listening is what wasn't happening before. Like, that's that's the point. Um, But actually, 
In a way, shutting up is a difficult one because if you're saying shut up, that then might mean also and take a step out of the conversation. So, you know, that, let's leave this whole sort of feminism, me too, and consent conversation to women, which, which doesn't make any sense because consent only happens between two people. So I, I do think it's a conversation that men and women have to have with each other and that if we say shut up, a conversation can't happen. So in that conversation, what do you want to hear from men? For me, what I would like to hear from men, or at least what I would like to sort of, the message to be able to convey is that actually, I wonder if we can see these things as part of a, a continuum, that um, the impulse that um, makes a man feel entitled to put his hand on a woman's knee in a taxi, and the... Uh, on the, the far end of that scale and the kind of worst possible um, iteration, the impulse that makes uh, a man want to assault a woman is essentially coming from the same place, which is that society is saying uh, women's bodies are sexual, are their public property sexually, and they are kind of literally up for grabs. Would you agree, therefore, that... All men, regardless of whether they have put their hand on a knee or done worse or done neither of those things, are in some way guilty by association just merely by being a man and being complicit within a society um, that is essentially patriarchal and has been for millennia. Um, I think I've said this before on the podcast, actually, but I think we're all guilty of a kind of internalised sexism. And I don't even know if guilty is the right word because, you know, it's, it's the water we swim in. It's everywhere. And therefore, I don't think... Um, I have felt implicitly guilty. Do you, do you actually feel guilty? Or do you feel got at? I feel that I am part of a, a dominant gender that you know, who have abused women and I feel almost in an original sin kind of way implicit in that um, in terms of feeling got at mm, I mean not directly but I do feel and I know that many men do feel cowed by the current environment yes I personally have found this conversation um particularly around consent I mean obviously this is heavy stuff but I've found it actually quite exciting and sort of hopeful it feels to me like the start of a kind of reckoning with power asymmetries not just in in gender but more broadly than that but also bring it back to consent I guess something that's been interesting you know we're now almost 18 months on from when Harvey Weinstein was uh, the allegations were first made and it seems to me that in that period, the way that we think about consent has, has sort of evolved. There's now talk of affirmative consent. So instead of it being about not saying no, it's about saying yes. So kind of enthusiastic um, consent. And that's sort of, I guess, what's, what's lacking in, in the cat person description. I mean, I wonder, as we redefine these things and we think about um, the meaning of kind of coercion... I've certainly been looking back and kind of in a, in a new light, thinking about things. Do you feel inspired and hopeful about the future? I think in a funny way I do. I mean, obviously, 
the depth of inequality and sort of corruption within lots of industries um, and the way that a woman's agency was even considered in, in the, as a question. Um, at the same time, I feel just as consent, um, the, the conversation around sort of redefining that to be like enthusiasm and, ye and yes means yes, an affirmative consent, I also feel like there's there's been a shift in another way, which is um, just hear people being able to tell their own stories um, and being believed. The huge power in speaking your own truth. Um, I think things are, things are getting better. We're going through a painful period of reckoning, but maybe we'll sort of maybe we are beginning to emerge into a slightly more um, awakened kind of world. So that's it for this week. Let us know what you think of the podcast. We would really love to hear from you. You can email us at everythingelse@ft.com. And if you'd like listening to us, then please subscribe. Everything Else is produced by David Waters. We've been Grizz and Al. And our music is composed by Fatum. Fatum.